The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, welcome back. We are TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on site, and we're at episode eighty-five. I am your host, Lee Prime Sinuendo Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host Daniel Hush Hush Harper. How are you doing, sir? I feel like I should. I feel like the joke should be to not say anything, but that doesn't really work on a podcast. No, because I'm keeping it hush hush, you know. But uh, yeah. I'm just. I'm. I was almost disappointed you didn't go with Robo Tomasi Harper, but you know, that was too obvious. It was too yeah. obvious. Hush Hush Harper just sort of rolls off the tongue a lot better, I think. It does, it does. Yeah. I feel I feel like if I was a Dick Tracy villain, it would be, you know, Hush Hush Harper. Because I talk <laughs> too much, because I'm a podcaster, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think they actually had a character like that on uh, Dick Tracy, who who who, do, who didn't squeal at all. Like, he murmured or something like that, or mumbles. Yeah, yeah, they had mumbles, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think that's uh, Robert De Niro in the... Uh... Ward Beatty uh, version? No, it's not Robert De Niro. No, he's pretty boy. No, no, no. Um, Al Pacino's pretty, pretty boy. Whatever. <laughs> I I I saw that movie once when it yeah. came out. I saw um, it in the theater actually. I saw it on a uh, pay per view. Yeah. Oh, no, God, no, it was before pay per view. This would have been uh like HBO or something. It was that era of my life because it's 1990. So right. yeah, that's a movie that might be worth revisiting at some point. I think so because I. I only I only saw it once as well, and it was in the theater when I was a kid, and I didn't understand what the fuck was going on in that film. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it on the list then. Dick Tracy, yeah, okay. starring Madonna. Yeah, for some reason. Uh, <laughs> because so, it was 1990, and she, yeah. and you know, that's just what happens when you need a sexy ingenue singer in 1990 for you know, is you just cast Madonna. That's it. Yeah. Today it would be Beyonce. Uh, but yeah, we, we're going to be doing L.A. Confidential uh, this time around from 1997. So uh, I think this is one we've both had on our sort of backlist for a while now to get into. And yeah, so finally we're going to be doing that. I don't know if this is going to start into an extended crime series. Probably not just yet. We might put that off for a little while this year, but we still wanted to do it. Yeah, I, I, I literally just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to rewatch this. Let's do it this week. And Lee said, okay, let's, let's do it. So this is, this is a wetting the appetite for more crime films for me. Yeah, right on. Uh, we do have quite a bit of feedback. I'm going to get to some of it here first, and then we'll get to some of the more L.A. Confidential-specific feedback after we get through our review, I guess. But first off, Jack Graham left a comment, and I was happy to see this uh, a comment actually show up on our Podbean site, which I've never seen before. So uh, Jack dipped his toes in, the, in those waters for us. And so he said, on our best of 2016, so glad you guys dig Stridulum. I love that demented fucking movie. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we did it because of you, Jack. So congratulations. Yeah. CB Fall. I'm not sure if I read this comment before. I don't remember reading this comment, so I must have missed it last time. And this is in relation to Cue the Winged Serpent. He says, I remember seeing this movie when it premiered. Too many crazy scenes that left me mind boggled indeed. And then, then our best of 2016, he says, awesome podcast. So he actually didn't meet your challenge of uh, finding something that he disagreed with that 
with you on on, on the podcast and brought it up. Oh, so too bad. I, I expect better from CB Falls at this point. I, I, I guess you're just too agreeable. That's all. I'm I'm too agreeable. I'm too I'm I'm really too middle of the road and uh, just say things that everyone just agrees with. You know, I'm a centrist. Really, is kind of the problem. I've never known you to be an outspoken person. You're very <laughs> very dose. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of really expressing an opinion on this yeah. podcast. Is the problem. <laughs> One more from Morbid Reich 86 on the YouTube version of our Best of 2016. It says, I enjoy an episode on The Witch. As always, keep up the good work with the podcast. I really enjoy it, and happy 2017. Well, thank you, sir, and happy 2017 you. And we will be doing The Witch sometime this year, definitely. So keep, keep your eye out for that one. Without further ado, I think we can uh, move on to what we've watched in the last little while. Uh, we've had some uh, time off here and there from podcasting and the holiday season and all that stuff. So uh, I'll throw it over to you there, Daniel, if you want to talk about some stuff. Really, I think the big thing I want to talk about is the um, just the stuff I watched for uh, Christmas, which um, are all movies I'd seen before. They're all you know like movies that I watched over the like Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, and these are kind of my the, the trifecta of Christmas movies for me. And that is, I watched The Apartment, which I've talked about on this podcast before. It's a Billy Water film from 1960. It is uh, one of my favorite just movies. It's just, it's kind of, it's a great story about Jack Lemmon, who uh, has an apartment in New York. He works for an insurance company, and the executives are essentially paying him for the use of the apartment so that they can take their mistresses there because they need like a bachelor pad. Okay. Um, and so it's it's kind of about that. But then um, he goes on this uh, kind of oddball romance with Shirley MacLaine, um, who is <laughs> right at her most fucking adorable in, in that moment. You know, man, it's, it's a phenomenal film. It goes way darker than you think it's going to go when you first start watching it. It's set right around Christmas. So it's it's definitely one of those kind of when I there's a pivotal scene actually that takes place in, on um, on Christmas Eve in a bar. Um, which is which is great. So um, I I don't think you've seen this one, um, Lee, but no, I would I've... highly recommend it. And I think we could even cover it on the show. I think it would really be worth uh, talking about at some point. But um, but yeah, that that's kind of one of those like go to Christmas movies that pe- for me that people don't necessarily think of. And then the other two I watched um, were uh, Gremlins and Die Hard because those are the two, you know, <laughs> yeah, the trifecta of Christmas movies. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Die Hard in a long time, but it was definitely one of those got to sit down, do the whole Die Hard miss thing. I forget sometimes just how strangely structured that movie is because when you think about Die Hard, you think, you know, Alan Rickman and uh, you think about the walkie talkie and Alan Rickman mm-hmm. and um, Bruce Willis. <laughs> I started, I had a timer. I kind of watched what time they don't start talking to each other until an hour into that fucking movie. You know, yeah. it really takes its time kind of getting you to that point. It really sets it up in, in kind of an interesting way. It's a little bit of a slow burn, honestly. And I think, I think that's one thing that you run into when you look at some of these, um, kind of old blockbusters from decades past is that, you know, today we kind of expect things to get started in the first 15 minutes, but in right. these, in, in older movies, you know, they definitely have a, a better sense of, or at least a different sense of kind of how long the audience is willing to, to sit and wait for, you know, kind of the action to start. Yeah. So that was it, an interesting experience. It doesn't have that modern sensibility of uh, action film has to have like three shots per every five seconds or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, just shot, 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 different angle. Uh, no wide shots of action. You know, everything has, has to be close up now, you know, where right, right. it just looks unreal. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about action cinematography and, and photography, I think, today. Um, Causelli Confidential does some really interesting stuff with the way it shoots. Um, Curtis Hansen does some really interesting stuff with the way he shoots action. But I think McTiernan, I mean, I, you know, <laughs> Die Hard is one of the best shot action movies of all time. Sorry, controversial opinion. Yeah. But, uh, 
it's 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 funny again, kind of watching it now with sort of a, a sort of. I mean, I was just kind of. I opened up a bottle of booze. I'm sitting. I'm just kind of enjoying it on a on Christmas Day kind of afternoon. My wife sat and watched a little bit of it with me, and she's never seen the film, but she kind of oh, really? watched a little bit of it here and there, and she's like, "Oh, so that's where all that comes from." And yeah. uh, she knows she knows the film mostly from the Bob's Burgers episode. Um, where they do a musical version of Working Girl and Die Hard. Um, oh, really? <laughs> and then they combine them at the end, which is a great Bob's Burgers episode. Highly recommended. Um, live Live Hard or Die Trying Girl is the name of that episode. <laughs> so uh, check that out sometime. Again, great film. Um, there's a lot of detail I can go into about what works and what doesn't, but yeah. And then uh, Gremlins, which again, one I hadn't seen in a long time, but a film that I grew up with, you know, and I kind of, mm-hmm. it's just kind of in my DNA at this point. Like even though I'd forgotten some of the like connective tissue and you know some of the, some of the stuff, but yeah, that's a really fun movie. Um, I forget just how much like nineteen fifties B horror movie there is in that. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah, and and how little the sort of central metaphor of the gremlins and the machines actually is used in the film. You know, yeah. it sort of has that genesis, it sort of has that idea, kind of at its core. But then it really doesn't do anything with that. It really is just kind of about these kind of little monsters, which is this sort of interesting phenomenon in the way that that works. And yet it's still kind of a classic. But that's also my favorite, my all-time favorite Phoebe Cates is uh, Gremlins. Ah, yeah, well, despite, despite Fast Times, I understand the appeal. But Gremlins was my Fast Times, if that makes sense, you know. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not even – actually, I don't even cite that as my favorite Phoebe Cates getting naked – uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be. What was it summer school? Is that the one? No, not a summer uh, no, school. It's private um, private resort. No private school. Private school. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> it's late. I apologize. There's, there's too many anyway with all yeah, the similar yeah. titles. But and yeah, she, no. No, she's she's good. Not and then there's another one where she's naked all the time for like half the movie. I seem to recall. I, don't, I can't. Well, remember. I think she's on a desert island or out in the wilderness somewhere or something. I can't remember what the fuck it is. But well, apparently we need to do the Phoebe Cates gets naked duopoly. For episode, I think that's uh, a good plan. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with this. Let's watch Phoebe Cates naked for four hours uh, this week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like both those movies. Actually, I love Gremlins. Die Hard still holds up for me really well. I think I actually really like the Gremlins sequel as well. I like the Gremlins sequel more than most people do. Well, it's it's really funny and smart, and it sort of just you know just does its own thing. It doesn't try to actually be a sequel. Really, it just. <laughs> All right, I, I saw a few things. First thing I'll mention is it's on Netflix. It's a apparently this is a first in a reboot of the Jean Claude Van Damme Kickboxer series of films. I think he was only in one or two of them anyway. But this is called Kickboxer Vengeance, and it's essentially a remake of the first Kickboxer. Jean uh, Claude Van Damme shows up in this one as well. At first, I thought it was a sequel where he's playing his original character, but no. As I was watching it, I realized, oh no, he's playing a totally different character. He's just just crazy French guy who happens to be living in Thailand or whatever, wherever this takes place. And it's not a very good movie, but it's kind of funny just for Jean-Claude Van Damme's performance. He's kind of interesting in it. And it's got some good action stuff. It's got uh, Dave Bautista from Guardians of the Galaxy as the main bad guy wearing this ridiculous fucking top knot uh, on his head, uh, this braided fucking top knot. It's ridiculous. It doesn't look real at all, but it's it's actually a pretty decent kind of just stupid action film, beat 'em up kind of film. Pretty enjoyable. I wouldn't say thoroughly enjoyable. I was about to say that, but it, it, it sounds thoroughly mediocre. It sounds it you know, like put it on, don't think about it, drink some beer. Yeah, Done. that's yeah. exactly what I did. <laughs> oh, I can yep. see that. I could see that for a, a pleasant Saturday afternoon. You know. Yeah. 
another one I watched is called Jane Got a Gun. It's a western starring uh, Natalie Portman, Joel Edgerton, Noah Emmerich, and uh, Ewan McGregor is the bad guy in it. Portman plays this woman in the Old West who shacks up with the wrong guy who happens to be a criminal, and they have to escape his his criminal gang essentially, and and go into hiding. And years later, they catch up with him, and and he's dying a slow death after returning home with a bunch of bullets in his back. So she seeks out her former lover before she she met this guy and tries to get him to uh, help her defend her homestead from this gang that's coming looking for her. Pretty decent. It's, it's nothing special going on in it, but it's got some good performances. Uh, the story's a little too, I think, neatly tied up at the end for, for my liking, but really good performance from Portman especially. thought it was really good, and uh, it's worth checking out if, you, if you're looking for a... Uh, for a decent little western. Yeah, that's been on my uh, Netflix watch list for a while. I just never have like hit play on that. So, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll check that out sometime. Yeah. Uh, one other one I watched, Southern Comfort from 1981, uh, directed by Walter Hill. It's got uh, Keith Carradine, Powers Booth, Fred Ward, and Peter Coyote in, in the main cast. And it's a uh, this film about the na- these National Guard, the squad of National Guardsmen who go on an exercise in the uh, Louisiana uh, Bayou. They sort of get lost, so they basically borrow some local people in in the Bayou have to have to basically borrow their boats, and they don't take too kindly to it, and they start hunting them down and killing them. And and the uh, the kicker is that. Uh, they they don't have any live rounds in their guns, basically. So they they're basically helpless to uh, to fight back for the most part. And it's just basically about the squad trying to survive and the different people in the squad coming in conflict with each other as they're as they're trying to get the hell out of this fucking swamp and not be killed by a bunch of fucking rednecks. And <laughs> it, definitely hard not to see of uh, the Vietnam War. There's definitely yeah, some. Yeah pretty pretty uh, easy to spot kind of allusions to that and it's really enjoyable it's sort of on the same kind of gritty level as um rolling thunder that i uh, cited last last episode as one of my best films i watched last year so i think this one might be uh on the contenders list for this year for best films i've watched for the first time this year so uh awesome. yeah southern comfort um, yeah, I think I've heard of it. I don't. I've never. I mean, I've never seen. It. I don't know. Anything, you know, I've just kind of heard the name around. But yeah, no, definitely sounds yeah. like it's definitely worth seeing. Good performances and uh, definitely worth checking out. And uh, the last thing I watched, I'll mention, and I know you have some stuff to say about this one too. Uh, Rogue One. It's actually, I'll throw it over to you first. What What are your sort of thoughts on that one? Actually, and I know this is uh, going to piss some people off, so uh, apologies in advance, but a Rogue One might actually be my favorite Star Wars movie. Um, mm. And I, I kind of preface this by saying I have not yet seen um, The Force Awakens, um, mm-hmm. although I'm planning on seeing it in the, in the near future, because after seeing Rogue One, I started, I've started re-watching the original Star Wars. I, I watched the original Star Wars uh, immediately afterwards, um, or like the next day or two. I really like Rogue One. I think it's the most kind of structurally sound. I like the fact that we're not doing a Cambillian, you know, hero myth, you know, right. uh, kind of thing. I like that it's a little bit more politically aware. I like the kind of cast of characters. I like the kind of men on a mission kind of, you yeah. know, element to it. It's, um, a, it's, a, it's like a World War II film, isn't it? Yeah, it feels like a World War II film, but with a, a kind of a modern sensibility. Um, I love fucking John Donnie Yen in it. Mm-hmm. He's uh, one of my favorite characters in Star Wars ever. I just really kind of bonded to that character in a, in a really real, real way. And, um, you know, it's it starts with the scene where the Nazis basically 
basically like kill people, which is always a great like opening yeah. to a film. You know, it's it's much it's much darker than I think um, some other yeah. stuff. I I mean, it's not perfect. I think Forrest Whitaker is kind of I mean, he's great, but he's kind of wasted. You know, there's mm-hmm. not there's not a lot kind of going on. Yeah, he he just kind of appears. He kind of gets to be menacing for a while. He gets to be heartwarming for a minute, and then he dies. And then, sorry, right. spoiler alert. If you haven't <laughs> seen one yet, yeah, they, um, they all die. Spoiler alert. They all die. I love I love the fact that they all die. You even get that mm-hmm. kind of a Watchmen uh, moment ending. You know, where the uh, with the bodies on the in the bomb and everything. So, right. yeah, I really enjoyed it. I actually I saw it twice um, because my wife and I went to see it, and then uh, we were, I just wanted to go out and see a movie, and uh, there was nothing else that I wanted to see more than just to see Rogue One again. So <laughs> we just went to see Rogue One again. Really enjoyable. I, I you know for me Star Wars is something I kind of grew up with, and I had I had a bunch of the toys and that sort of stuff, but I never had a really strong uh, uh, attraction to the narrative per se, you know? Yeah. Um, it really wasn't until I was a teenager that I actually sat and watched them all in order, actually. Even though I, you know, obviously I, I mean, it's just something that's just seeped into my brain because I grew up, I mean, I was born in 1980, so Star Wars is part of who I am, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's uh, looking at the films as films. I mean, you know, if you if you take yourself out of it and you go, let's pretend that the special effects are not as groundbreaking as they were because that's that's the, I mean, that's the thing. There are amazing special effects, and there's like the you know, but they're really just the particularly the first one. I mean, it's it's a series of set pieces that show off the effects, and have like some clippy lines of dialogue and some really talented performers. I mean, you got to give yeah. the, the performers credit, but there's no real story there. There's no real meaning to it. You know, it's it's just no, kind of it's, it's very it's, it's very just kind it's of very flat. it's very mishmashy. Like you got a little hidden hidden fortress, and you got like some Flash Gordon and some other stuff stuck in there. And it's not like it's a super complex story. It's very very basic and right. very it's not very focused. Honestly, <laughs> I have some really close friends who are like super Star Wars fans, and I'm I'm great with that. And I I completely understand the fandom, and I love the people that get a lot out of it, and the expanded universe is. Um, I know a lot of people uh, consider that really, really meaningful to them. Um, mm-hmm. I think all that's great. It just is not something that's ever going to mean as much to me yeah. as it does to them. And on that level, just as a movie watching experience, I think Rogue One was a really, really fun experience and a really just great kind of popcorn movie with some some meaning behind it um, and some and some real heart behind it as well. Um, yeah, but, I liked I liked it. Uh, I'm not. Super big Star Wars fan. I'm kind of more into the original three without all the uh, special effects tweaks that came later yeah. on or whatever. Right. As far as Rogue One stands, I think it's the most original of all the Star Wars films. It's it's definitely not a, a fan service film like uh, The Force Awakens was, and it's definitely not a reintroduce you to Star Wars that you you knew and loved. That that's also kind of what Force Awakens is a lot about. But this one, like you said, very much kind of like a war movie. Very much like Dirty Dozen uh, yeah. kind, kind of idea. For the most part, I really liked it. I enjoyed that it was darker in tone. I enjoyed that it wasn't some grand big space opera. I really enjoyed that the Force was very, very small in it. Like, there wasn't a lot of Jedi magic shit going on in the film. It was very much full of people who believed in the Force as a religion. But a lot of them, you know, they didn't have the force, you know. You think about you think about Donnie Yen's character and he's you know, it, the whole point of him is basically were there someone to train him, he'd be a Jedi Knight, you know. Mm-hmm. But there isn't. And so he's sensitive and so he has you know, it kind of enhances his martial arts and that sort of thing. Um and he has this kind of but but it's much more subtle and it's much more yeah. like there's one guy who can kind of do this. But they never 
turn that into, and now he can just solve the plot, you know, (laughs) or, you know, you, you, the the one thing, the one thing when you look at those films, I mean, you know, and and this goes for, um, you know, all the ones I've seen, you you know, they, they never really seem to be able to like understand what the Jedi should be able to do, Mm -hmm. you know, if they just, wanted to to do you know like because like the the clairvoyant stuff it it works and then it doesn't you know well the force lets me do this but it doesn't and um it never it never really holds together beyond anything that's just sort of like a fun watch you know in terms of like the world building just doesn't make any sense at all which Mm -hmm. is fine it's not meant to be that but at the same time it's kind of i've always felt distanced from it slightly just because of that you know that that it really is just kind of this is a cool thing why do they have laser swords because they do you know yeah because it's awesome why else would you yeah Yeah, i think if there's one kind of like fundamental criticism i'd have i wish they were doing something that was not as directly connected to the main franchise i I wish it was just a a side story that had nothing to do with the the kind of like the the big overarching plot so the idea because i went into it fairly blind i really didn't know i mean i was i kind of heard some of the criticism i knew everyone died at the end um just because of like some of the the you know the, the stuff that kind of went around and um just the conversation around it and mm-hmm. but but i really didn't know kind of what was going on because i just don't pay attention to it anymore so then i was like oh we're doing kind of a nazi story we're doing this kind of and then like oh it's all about getting the plans for the death star that's yeah you know it is, it is kind of ironic um or not not ironic but it is um it's kind of heartbreaking to see um carrie fisher there in that last in that last shot you know mm-hmm. um just just uh because i saw it twice and once right before she died and then once right after and so it was kind of like it really hit me differently that second time because well that's that's it that's the you know um because carrie fisher is someone who who did mean a lot to me you know um yeah i actually i actually get a little bit sadder just thinking that a lot of people just know her as princess leia they don't actually realize like the career she had around it right like the interesting writer she was and how witty Mm -hmm. and stuff she was you know so yeah 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 I admire her for her outspokenness and her um, kind of struggle with mental illness and, and drug mm-hmm. addiction and stuff. You know, that's the stuff that I'm like, that's that's really you. I mean, you know, Princess Leia is something you were cast as when you were 19 years old. That's great. I don't have a problem with that. That's a big part of my childhood for, you know, obvious and not so obvious reasons. But, you know, it's a very different thing than the woman that she then became, you know, with her fame, you know. Did you, did you see the... Uh... I don't know if this is a real story or not. It might just ended up being an onion story, but I think it is real that the urn her ashes have been buried in was a uh, Prozac pill. It was like a large scale model of a Prozac pill for, for I think her I, urn. I, I think I saw something uh, like on social media just before we sat down to record that was something yeah. like that. So it, it looked it looked real enough. I was not. I didn't. I didn't click <laughs> on it. So you know. But if but, it is, it makes a lot of sense. It fits her perfectly. <laughs> well, well, that 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 mix of like absolute deadpan humor and um, silliness, uh, but also really just going for it. Like, like there's no, there's no, I mean, this is, this is how she will be buried. This is the last like message she has to send to the world. And you know, that's it. So I'm, I'm not religious, but you know, you go with God, Carrie. Yeah. That's that's no, no fucks given. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't mind the CGI in that film. either. like the CGI characters. I thought that Peter, Cushing was mostly not uncanny valley for me, you know. Yeah. So for the most part, I was all right with it. I, I'm I'm amazed at the vitriol towards that. I mean, honestly, because I, I I I mean, I understand if 
if you see it and you go, it's Uncanny Valley, I know it's CGI. I mean, obviously it's CGI. He's been dead for a while, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, like, for me, it was just, well, we have the technology. This is this is something we're doing. Why recast it? You know, why mm-hmm. why why do it another way if you don't have to? I thought it, I thought it looked fine. I was not I was not in any way distracted by it. It was I just yeah. I just accepted it as okay, it's it's a fake Peter Cushing. But yeah. But and I mean they did recast him in just minor scenes for the prequels. Mm-hmm. And they, it was the guy it's the guy who played uh Scorpius on Farscape. They used him. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so and they did they mostly did far away shots, but even then it kind of looked horrible. So I mean right. this was actually probably a much better solution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah if you haven't. Although we just ruined the ending, so you know. Everybody dies. Yeah, they, have, they all die. No no happy uh, smiley faces. Yeah, except Carrie Fisher's at the end. Yeah, and then she died in real life. So like yay. Yeah. So double the movie of the year. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's twenty sixteen wrapped up in one <laughs> one fell swoop. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the Nazis win, but for now see. they win. Yeah, yeah, for now. Badasses, boobs, and body counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. (laughs) Will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off.
So I guess we can move on to our main event now, and we're going to be talking about L.A. Confidential from 1997. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big B, what are you doing here? Hey, you know me, I'm keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, college boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the night owl case? fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback, big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. Do you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences? Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. Directed by Curtis Hansen, written by James Alroy, who wrote the novel, Brian Helgeland, and... Curtis Hansen for the screenplay, starring Kevin Spacey as uh, Jack Vincennes, Russell Crowe as Bud White, Guy Pierce as Ed Exley, James Cromwell as Dudley Smith, Kim Bassinger as Lynn Bracken, Danny DeVito as Sid Hudgens, David Stratham as Pierce Patchett, and Ron Rifkin as D.A. Ellis Lowe. And uh, we'll move over to your synopsis there, Daniel. So when was the first time you watched this, uh, Daniel? This is a movie, actually, um, one of the reasons I've been kind of pushing us to do this, it's, it's always been on my like short list to, to cover, just because um, it's a movie that actually means more to me maybe than I even realized, like consciously. I saw this, this, this was one that I saw on pay-per-view, whenever it came out in pay-per-view in, you know, 97, either late 97 or early 98, you know. Um, I did not see it in theater. But I was uh, 17, so I was... 17 or just turned 18 at that point when I saw it. I want to say it was like Christmas time, 97. I tried to look it up. When was this released on pay-per-view? But that's like an impossible thing to track yeah. down on the internet in 2016. TV guide? What the fuck is that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although looking for it, I found like old billboard scans, you know? Oh, yeah. And then they have like a whole column of like the best-selling home videos of the week. It's like, wow, that was 20 years ago. Like, I am an old man. I am an old, old man to remember when... Home video was a commercial enterprise. Yeah. You know? yeah. 
Get LA Confidential on, on VHS and get Air Bud, the newest hit smash movie, you know, or whatever the fuck was released around then. No, I saw it. I saw it on, uh, you know, on Pan and Scan TV, um, rented it through pay-per-view. Um, Dad watched it with me. Man, I had no idea what it was, just, just kind of sitting and watching it. It kind of told me what a good movie could be. It was sort of one of those awakening moments for me in terms of being, in terms of, like, real, like, movie geekery, in terms of, like... Mm-hmm understanding what like plots could be and understanding how police procedurals could be put together and how character work could be done. It's subtle. And I mean, it's, it's not subtle at all in a lot of ways, but it really does have this, this kind of, I think compelling through line of a plot and it has, it really lets its character speak for themselves and it doesn't lay a kind of moral system on us as a viewer. Mm -hmm. It really allows us to kind of see the world, see the flaws in everybody, but also presents a point of view despite that and I, in a pretty sophisticated way. Again, it means a lot to me just because of when I saw it and, you know, kind of what it led to for me, because it was kind of one of those that, you know, Pulp Fiction was my real awakening. And I didn't see that until 98. So I saw it years after it was, it was made, but, and that was the one that really, I became a movie geek when I saw Pulp Fiction, yeah. you know, and that led me down the path that led me here. So like, fuck off you know, to both of these movies, right? <laughs> I was like, how many hours of my life have I spent on this now? But LA Confidential was definitely a really important stepping stone on that path. And I still just love it. I think it's just a crackerjack film full of amazing performances. I mean, the only weaknesses in the film are really, for me, just sort of the things that it's not able to do just because it's only two hours and 13 minutes long. I mean, you know, there are certainly some issues. I mean, there's only one woman in the film, for instance, which, you know, sort of makes sense given the world. But it would be nice to kind of expand that element. I think today we would we would expect that to be expanded a little bit more. Right. Um, so so there uh, certainly we can quibble with it. And there's one performer who I think is slightly miscast, and I will we'll talk about him um, okay. shortly. Overall, and, and it's a film that, for me, it gave me Guy Pierce and Russell Crowe. This is mm-hmm. the first time I might have seen Virtuosity before I saw this, but um, I'm pretty sure I saw this. I think after. I probably saw Virtuosity first as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. But I didn't even connect Russell Crowe with that. No. I mean, it wasn't until later. I'm like, oh, that's the same fucking guy. My God, like that's amazing. Yeah, he sorry, was... I, I'm kind of babbling at this point, but um, yeah, yeah it's was... a great film. It means a lot to me, and so I'm glad we're talking about it. I had very similar sort of first impressions of this movie that you did. This, this, this for me was one of those films that sort of set me on the path to becoming more of a movie nerd, you know, getting much more serious into it. First time I watched this, I rented it on VHS and this along with the big Lebowski and a couple other films were the ones that I was constantly re-renting like almost every week to the point where uh, in the case of the big Lebowski, that, tape actually snapped like several times and back then the old fix was that you take it back to the uh, vhs rental place and they put a piece of tape where the fucking tape broke and they just (laughs) wind it back in but um (laughs) and they don't charge any extra for it because while it happens the tape breaks after you use it enough so you know but yeah uh, i rented it and then i got a a version i bought uh, for myself my own copy and uh (sighs) My dad sold it at a yard sale with uh, un- unknowingly. <laughs> he didn't realize that uh, I wanted to keep it. It ended up in a box of stuff to be sold at the yard sale somehow. So that happened. But uh, I eventually got it again on DVD, of course. First time I watched it, I just was kind of mesmerized. At first, I was super confused because this film does a really great job of confusing the viewer. Like, you don't know any more than what the characters in the film know. Like, you basically unravel the mystery with them and you're not even aware really there's a mystery for the first half of the film it seems like a bunch of unconnected 
vignettes almost to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And that's just kind of the genius of the writing of this where they manage to tie it all in the end and it makes sense. It doesn't come off convoluted. It doesn't come off rushed or forced or anything like that. It's much more about following these characters. Adapted from the James Elroy book, it's very, very condensed. The book itself, which is the third in his uh, L.A. Quartet, covers uh, a span of eight years from like 50 to 58 or 59, something like that. So a lot of the events you see in this film at least the ones that aren't changed from the book, they happen over the span of that eight years instead of being condensed into, like, what, a couple months or something at the most? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this takes takes place over a very short period of time. Right. Uh, Like, unrealistically short in some some cases. It feels Mm -hmm. feels like it's been compressed a little bit more than than even sort of makes sense. Um, Mm -hmm. But... You know, it can't be more than like six months at the absolute outside, you know. Yeah, and I have read that book. I've read the entire quartet. Like that's those are the ones I've read from Elroy anyway. And they're very long books. It's very labyrinth plots throughout the entire series. L.A. Confidential itself has eight to ten different like separate kind of plots following different characters. And this condenses it down to about three. You got your three main detectives are essentially the story. Like Lynn Bracken isn't. From what I can recall, like I read these as a teenager. So from what I can recall, Lynn Bracken isn't even a character really oh, yeah. in in the original book. It's the uh it's the girl who's raped, the young Mexican girl who's raped. She's yeah, actually yeah. the love interest that um She's Inez or something like that, I think is her yeah, name. She's, yeah, she's she's named briefly when um Exley is uh posing for a photograph with her. Yeah. It's like Inez, what do you how do what do you have to say to your hero cop or whatever, you know? Yeah. But this screenplay does a beautiful job of deconstructing the book and pulling out a lot of the uh stuff and just throwing it away and condensing it and still making it work really well, still kind of keeping the tone. This is one of the few films that's been adapted from Elroy's stuff where he's been, you know, at least complimentary about it, saying, Hey, it's actually pretty good. <laughs> you know, he 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 basically says and he, he doesn't get mad about it either. Like, he's just like, you know, they're going to fuck my movie up. I don't care. They pay me for it. So what the fuck yeah. do I care anyway? But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is one of the few films he's been complimentary about that, uh, you know, yeah. like, so, uh, you know, if, if you, if you're going to, if you can please Elroy <laughs> by taking his work and chopping it to pieces and making something great out of it, then you, you know, you're on the right track. Definitely. Definitely. I guess this is, I mean, I feel like I just want to go through and talk about the individual characters a bit. Um, mm-hmm. It kind of starts off as a, I don't, I don't know. Would you call this a noir? Because I would. Um, well, I was gonna, I was gonna kind of save that for a little bit later, but okay. I, 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 fuck it, I'll jump into it. Okay, so I did the really serious movie geek thing. I told you I did this, where I watched it in black and white. I watched it three times for this podcast. I watched it once straight. I watched it once with the commentary track, which probably wasn't a great idea because it's one of those ones where it's like multiple commentary tracks all spliced together, basically, oh, yeah. which I fucking hate. And then I watched it in black and white and because I just wanted to see how well this played as like a black and white kind of noir. But it really doesn't. The way it's shot, it's not shot as noir. It's not got no. that sort of harsh lighting. It, it's very modern, naturalistic kind of movie-making lighting setups but once you get to the final shootout at the victory motel then it just oh, goes yeah. straight noir then it's oh, straight ahead noir and it, it can and be straight out of touch of evil like that that final yes. that final shootout yeah definitely yeah and, and it's very effective there and even afterwards after like the this basically the final act of the film kind of keeps that tone in and if you watch it in black and white it 
does work pretty well as like a 1950s, 1960s kind of noir, you know, like later tail ends kind of almost going into neo-noir kind of thing. So, yeah, it does work. But uh, no... On on the surface, it's part noir, but it's not really a full noir. Like you know, it's it's like some movies are not necessarily horror movies, but they have horror elements. Like Jurassic mm. Park has horror elements, but it's not a horror movie. Really, this is kind of the same idea where it's it's a crime film with noirish tones to it. I mean, it's definitely a crime film. It's it's just I mean, for me, I think the the immediate thing when you look at the score and you look at the um, you know, the, the, the kind of the time period and everything is like, oh, it's noir. But I think that's a really, I think kind of a poor reading of it to, to call it noir just because mm-hmm. it doesn't fit the structure. I mean, none of the individual storylines even fit the structure. You know, no. it's not taking noir elements. It's not really talking about things in this kind of noirish way. It's not really even bleak enough, <laughs> quite honestly, to be noir. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not playing on that field. It's, it's doing sort of a, it definitely derives from the kind of 30s crime fiction um, Mm -hmm. that noir kind of grew grew out of as well. But even beyond just the cinema of it, where I agree it doesn't look anything like a noir would, but but even just looking at it structurally and looking at it, it draws from the same sorts of ideas that noir did, but it seems like it goes on its own path. And it feels a lot more kind of 50s art deco, like aging art deco than it feels noir so so it's almost like it skips the 40s entirely you know it ends way too yeah sorry go ahead sorry i was just gonna say it it ends way too happy to be a noir like (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know we've seen some noir that that kind of that kind of i mean um i guess a kiss of death kind of kind of snatches that happy ending out of the end you know um so you could certainly see you know that too um you know like it could be like a neutered noir but i don't know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't uh tingle that noir bone for me and so that's kind of where i'm it's more like a realistic version of Dragnet, where, you know, and it parodies, parodies Dragnet with the badge of honor show within the movie, too, right? It's, it's kind of more like the real blood and guts version of what one of those shows would be if they didn't have the censorship and everything and the sensibilities right. back then, right? So. Yeah, I mean, it very much. It very much is. I mean, it's it's explicitly about kind of taking this artifice. I mean, and, and anytime you're talking about L.A., you're kind of talking about Hollywood, and particularly when you're making a movie about you know, mm-hmm. old Hollywood. Um, there's there's even a uh, they even walk past a bad and the beautiful, you know, yeah. marquee um, at least twice in the film. So you know you got it. I mean, you've literally got hookers cut to look like movie stars. So mm-hmm. this is a film that's really about artifice and it's about this sort yeah. of like and and um, politically the film is very much about this sort of we have this image of the '50s as being this sort of you know leave it to Beaver dragnet kind of very kind of straight-laced thing. But in reality, you know, people are doing heroin and, and sleeping with hookers and, and killing each other. And there's, yeah. you know, gay it's people are, are being or, you know, sleeping together and, you know, all this sort of thing. So, um, I mean, it's about kind of exposing that semi underbelly, but it's not really, it doesn't feel like we're supposed to be shocked by it either, which I think is another like key to why the film works is that it just presents this. Well, of course, this is what the world is, you know, <laughs> and then That's... it just allows us to explore those implications, you know? Yeah, that's sort of where Elroy's tech is sort of maintained really well in the narrative, where Elroy sort of grew up somewhat in this world and knowing this sort of like sort of the remnants of it at the very least. And he and he grew up from a really bad background too. like his mother was murdered for fuck's sakes. And and that kind of ruined him for quite a while. But but yeah, he's very matter of fact, very frank about it. Like, yeah, the 50s were not nice (laughs) and he actually doesn't have a problem with it though he kind of celebrates it to a certain degree like he he is a little bit right wing you know he's he's very outspoken on being saying like yeah i kind of 
fall towards being more of a authoritarian more than I am, you know, a, more of a permissive kind of person. But I understand this world. I know this world existed and I write about this world. And so, yeah, I mean, it just kind of lays it all bare in this movie. So Right, right. Politically, it's kind of all over the map, right? Because it it's kind of is kind of exposing this sort of um, police corruption stuff. It presents that as just the way things are. Mm-hmm. It presents us with a you know erstwhile hero in Ed Exley who is against that, who is who is uh, trying to rise above that, but who is doing so in this very kind of conniving political way. Right. You know, it presents him as this. I mean, he you know he's he's a flawed hero at the end. I mean, he's definitely a character who has decided to work within this incredibly evil system for his own ends, but still trying to make things better. And mm-hmm. it, I mean, it kind of gives us the happy ending, but it is incredibly ambiguous in terms of the way it really treats its characters, which I think is one of the strengths is it doesn't, it, the, the film, I don't know what the novel does and I don't know how Elroy feels about it, but I don't think the film leans too hard on us, like feeling a particular way about any of these characters. It doesn't try to force you to side with any of the characters. I mean, for most of the film, it doesn't even really hint at, at whether you should like these characters or not, honestly, because Bud White is, I mean, yes, he has this moral code and, there are some decent qualities to him, but deep down, he's a he's a dirty cop <laughs> and he's a thug. Right. So I mean, follow- at seventeen, when I saw, I and mean, I'll tell you, when I was seventeen and I saw that opening sequence with Bud White, where he rips the uh, the the Christmas lights down and then he like beats the shit out of that guy for beating his wife. I mean, I'm like, yeah, you fuck mm-hmm. that guy, you know? Like, I'm I'm very, you know, because you know, and then um, it complicates that, you know, yeah. when he, I mean, he himself you know, beats on a woman, you know, later on in the film. And then when you realize just how much, I mean, he does have that kind of backstory he tells about, you know, um, being changed to the radiator for three days or, or you know, however that you know, story went. But, well, yeah, he's he's really damaged. He, yeah. He's, he's obviously really fucked up. And what, what I like really, I think one of the best things I like about this film is his relationship with... Uh, Kim Bassinger, where mm-hmm. both characters immediately see through each other. From the first time they lock eyes, they see through each other, and they both basically have each other's number right away. That's part of what kind of attracts them to each other. Yeah. That they could be... <laughs> they, they sort of bring the real them out of each other. Bud White's so fucking sheltered and socially inept that when she does something that hurts him, he fucking loses control and ends up becoming the thing he hates the most. He's, Black- a, he's a rage monster. And, that, and, yeah. the, and the thing is like, that's the, like, this is, this is what, you know, this is what toxic masculinity does to us is it teaches us that the way we should respond to these evil. Uh, I mean, these people who beat women are, are, are evil fuckers, you know, mm-hmm. like let's, let's not mince words about that, but it teaches us that the way to respond to that is, you know, violently is with like, well, I'm going to go beat the fucking guy to the, you know, and, and sort of like, when that usually is not helpful, you know, mm-hmm. that is not usually the first and most appropriate response. Certainly not if you're confronted with a, a crying woman who, with a, with a black eye, you know, getting angry is what we're kind of taught we're supposed to do. And Bud White is, is in a lot of ways, I mean, he's a repudiation of that as a character, but he's also, it also kind of celebrates that to a certain degree. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it presents that as being a very, in some ways, a healthy response that Bud White is essentially taking his own anger issues and he's like kind of channeling it towards, you know, this kind of other like awful world, but also it shows the limitations of that and who, and who he is, you know? Yeah. I think that's, what's good about this movie. And like I was saying, where you follow the characters and you're not sure whether you're supposed to like them or not. And it takes you through the entire movie, basically keeping you asking that question, 
and then eventually you have to make up your mind maybe at the end. But uh, I like that. Like that this is a big thing. This is also kind of a thing with Elroy's uh, kind of text. Although the film does kind of wrap things up in a neat package to a certain degree. At the same time, Elroy doesn't believe in tidy endings for characters and for plots. You still have like loose threads at the end of this. You still have ambiguity. Like where are these people going to go? What's going to happen to them? Yeah. You know? So uh, the movie does a really good job of, taking you through that throughout the entire thing and just keeps you on edge as to whether, you know, what do I really think about this film? The first few times I watched this, I was super confused, honestly, because <laughs> I, I did root for, for Bud for a while. And then I was starting to think, wait, maybe he's the bad guy in this film. Maybe, maybe he's going to end up being the major bad guy in this film, you know? And, and it goes along and then you start thinking, you know, Exley, is he really all that good? Is all this, just kind of a, a facade to get him higher up in the ranks. You know, you, you kind of wonder if, if there's really any sort of morality in him, and you know, like whether he's just really that punk kid that everyone thinks he is. It's brown nosing his way to the top. It really keeps you asking those questions throughout the entire running time of the film almost. And let's talk about the, uh, I mean, we talked a little bit about Bud White and uh, we kind of danced around, but I think it's, it's probably most interesting to talk about these uh, characters, you know, in particular our three leads, <laughs> two Australian actors playing Americans, which right. I, I mean, I, I, even watching it now, I don't, I don't, I don't catch a, <laughs> a problem with the with the performances or the accents. Like, I, mm-hmm. I buy them immediately. Um, this is my introduction to both of these actors. And uh, look, our second time covering a Guy Pierce film, because we're jumping right. us already. So, you know, I think Guy Pierce is amazing in this. I yeah. really love the Edmund Exley character. I think, you know, he's, he's this kind of, you get the sense at the beginning that he's this, you know, kind of climber, this kind of political animal. I mean, um, Dudley Smith calls him, you know, oh, you're, you're, this political man you're not really a detective but he wants to be a detective because he he believes in what he's doing he believes in kind of being a part of this system he believes in um in in kind of being a part of the police force that it could be a a force for good uh despite the fact that you know he knows because of his hero cop father who you know i i suspect the book goes into a little bit more detail about how he's probably not as heroic as you know we Uh, would uh, actually actually it's vastly different let's just leave it at that and it's not even it's not even He's trying to avenge the memory of his dad because his dad's not actually dead in the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> Until later. Sure, sure. <laughs> so. No, that's fair. Yeah, so you, you get a sense of this guy is this political creature, but also somebody who, who does have a moral code, who does have the, who is trying to make the world a better place through this really corrupt institution and trying to reform the institution from within. And you see how, like, by definition, that's going to morally compromise you. Yeah, you know, I think I think overall, he is. I mean, if we're going to pick someone who is the the least morally tainted person in the in the film, it's probably it's probably him. I would I mm-hmm. would argue, and not because he refuses the payout, but because he's you know he's he's willing to dig into the muck in order to to do what has to be done to to, to yeah. try to make things better. Um, and I love I love Guy Pierce's performance. I love the way he wears those glasses and those suits. I just I think he's he's phenomenal. I love how, you know, you see him with the glasses, then he takes them off and he does that like very like square jawed dragnet kind of pose right. uh, for the cameras. Um and they're, they're, again kind of going back to that artifice, you know. Um, yeah, how they keep telling them to lose the glasses because no detective worth his worth his spit wears glasses. I don't know. A, I don't know a single man on the bureau who wears them. Well, <laughs> and of course, Kevin Spacey, who you know, man, this film was made in 1997, and that's like peak Kevin Spacey, right? Yeah. You know, like, like how? I mean, you got to think this is this is only uh, two years after The Usual Suspects. So I mean, you know, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so he's uh, very clearly the 
the biggest star in the movie. I mean, you know, you know, Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce, like who the fuck are those guys? Like at yeah. this point, you know, but yeah, he's smarmy. He's charming. I mean, the, the film does something that I think is really clever and that it, it doesn't play on our kind of moral sympathies in terms of the way that the characters are written. But um, then as a, as a, you know, in terms of the writing and the direction, Helgeland, well, not even the writing, it's, it's the direction and the performances. Hanson gets, gets the actors and particularly Spacey is like the king of this to, really throw the charm on to really show like the this is this is kind of a likable guy like if you were mm-hmm. if you were hanging out with this guy you'd like hanging out with him even though you you'd find him reprehensible you'd think he's a snake but you'd still kind of like him as a person right. and you know he ends up kind of doing some good work in the end you know you kind of you kind of get a sense that you know he despite his sort of very um kind of flashy exterior you do get a sense that you know when when the push comes to shove he actually does sort of do the right thing you know well, he doesn't like he doesn't like himself. Like you can tell. Like you can just you just kind of see where he's looking himself in the mirror, and he's he's doing these sort of these shots on him where he's just kind of looking there for a minute and standing sitting still and looking. Like you can kind of tell in his eyes, what, what the fuck happened to me? And he just right. he doesn't like he doesn't like it. Like he just kind of realizes he can't keep behaving the way he's been behaving the last little while. It gets him killed, but you know that's that's part of what this film's about is these people sort of confronting who they really are and overcoming it, whether whether it means they're going to live on or they're going to die. Either way, you know. Right. I mean, ultimately, what we run into is that the you know the man who uh, hates violence against women beats up on a woman mm-hmm. and then gets her in the end because wah, wah, you know, it's the fifties, yeah. the political animal who uh, has his career made by a, uh, by a case um, decides he has to destroy that in order to, to do what's right. And then our um, kind of uh, master of flash and artifice um, finds sort of hidden reserves of strengths within him, you know? So, so yeah. everybody kind of ends up, you're right. I really like that. Everybody does kind of find their themselves confronted with who they really are and then has to make a decision about what they want to do about that. Also, um, our, our kind of fourth lead, I guess, would be um, Lynn Brackett, and I'm sure that has nothing to do with Lee Brackett. I'm sure no, of course not. <laughs> Nobody was thinking that. No. Uh, uh, Kim Basinger, who I think is uh, amazing in this. I think, I think mm-hmm. she's She's not in very much of this. I mean, if you sit down and like time how much of it, you know, she's only in maybe ten or fifteen minutes of this movie. Yeah, but she's so um, so much the center of it in a lot of ways. But not not like a femme fatale or a damsel in distress. No, you know, she doesn't fit into those categories. She's a she's one of the many characters who is kind of circulating around this mystery, and she's closer to the center than a lot of other people. But it's not like it becomes her story. Or like she like her femininity is like the key to her as a character. It's just sort of yeah. like she is that. And you're right. I think you mentioned earlier. Um, I love the relationship that she has. She has with Bud White. I love the way that she. Um, they really do kind of fall for each other for who they really are. They see through each other. <laughs> Two very attractive people banging. Like what else? What else do you have to say about yeah, that? Well, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, she has that great little little uh, couple lines there where she she's talking to Exley and. Actually, like, what do you see in Bud White? And she's like, this, 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 basically everything I don't see in you. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, that's that's a great, that's a great little yeah. exchange, you know. Uh, she has another line where, you know, he, you're the first uh, man who, uh, it's something who didn't, like. Who, uh, didn't, didn't say. Uh, didn't say I look like Veronica Lake. Yeah, you know? and he's like, you look better. <laughs> right, <Yeah. laughs> right. Which, you know, we could, we could argue that point. But, you know, certainly, uh, 
certainly Kim Basinger is is a, a very attractive woman in this. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, uh, it's, 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 it's a comeback for her. And she was like 44 at this time, so she's at least 10 years older than any of the uh, male leads that she she. Oh, that uh, is interesting. Or the two male are. The two male leads, anyway, that she's involved yeah, in yeah. the films. Yeah. yeah, no. And then, of course, she she ends up playing Exley in the film. She sets him up to uh, to, to kind of take the fall, and then um, she she says uh, to to Bud White, "Oh, I thought I was helping you." Like I, I like, and that and that's a legitimate character moment. I I mean, I I do wish there was a little bit more of her. I wish we got a little bit more of that connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish she hadn't she didn't end up with Bud White in the end. But I guess that's more that moral ambiguity thing, you know, that yeah. we're just kind of playing with. But yeah, I think you know, again, our kind of four leads are all phenomenal, and then they're surrounded by this really great supporting cast. Um, yeah. Which I mean, we could kind of go through a lot of them. Well, I mean, first fucking James Cromwell, goddamn, he's so fucking good in this. I mean, he he just come off of uh, Babe, I think was. Yeah, well, Babe was this? a couple of years. Was I think Babe is ninety five? So again, a couple of years yeah. before this. But that was like um, the big. That was the big thing he came off of though before this. This, and... this is the same year he played Zephyr Cochran. Oh yeah, that's right. Same year as First Contact. Yeah, so First Contact. Like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but goddamn, he's so good because he's just. I even wrote it down here. What I, I wrote, he he carries himself like a Catholic father figure, charming and stern, ultimately respectable. He manages to fool everyone for a good while, concealing that he's the spider at the center of a very large web. One thing I couldn't tell, I mean, again, I've just seen this movie enough times as a kid, you know, or as a teenager and, and into my adulthood, although I haven't seen it in years. Um, I think I watched it like five years ago last time and then, you know, just kind of picked it back up to this week. I can't tell the degree to which the reveal that he's the bad guy when he when he shoots um, Vincennes. I can't really tell the degree to which that is actually unexpected or to the degree that I just saw it in that moment to where it was totally blew me away. Cause that blew me the fuck away when I saw it at 17. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much we're supposed to see him as this kind of slimy guy. Who's obviously the bad guy at the heart of it. I don't think it's obvious, but no, I don't either. Okay. I but think I'm bad I think at missing those things. I'm good. I'm very, I'm very apt to miss like those kind of elements in these kinds of films sometimes. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what I was saying where I, I feel like we only basically know as much as the uh, three lead detectives know at any given time in the film. Like we, we don't really know much more ahead of what they know, if anything. So right. we're kind of, we're following Vincent's with him in his investigation. And I mean, we might have suspicions because his investigation leads him to, to Dudley to ask him questions. And unfortunately he asks the wrong questions and gets killed for it, you know, right there. Right, right. But yeah, uh, no, it's, it's, it's funny how much the plot, it really does make sense. I mean, once you're, once you're kind of can reconstructed at the end, it's like, okay, all of this really holds together really well, but it's constructed in a way so that you don't necessarily have to know exactly why mm-hmm. particular things are happening because we're just kind of carried along in the kind of emotional logic of the story. They go to the Pierce Patchett, I remember kind of like the first couple of times I watched this, like I just, I wasn't quite on the level of, okay, why did they kill Pierce Patrick? You know, where, mm-hmm. where's this, you know, what exactly is going on? I know there's some heroin and others, you know, but it, so you, you don't necessarily have to follow everything. It really is to sort of, if you miss the details of, of the, of the plot, you're still kind of carried along by the logic of, yeah. the, of the narrative. And, um, because the performances and because the direction and because of this, the kind of like the more momentum, particularly once you get towards the, the kind of the, the final third of the film, I mean, it just moves. Um, it really does not. I mean, two hours, 13, it does not feel long. No. And I, I mean, in that, despite the, it has a fairly languid first hour, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's fairly willing to kind of let things play 
as they need to play. But it really knows how to pick up the pace towards the end and not not make you uh, feel like you are um, you're just marking time. There's no there's no point towards the end of this film where I feel like oh that was a wasted scene or that was unnecessary. It, it just it just moves, you know. Despite right. the fact that it's covering a lot of ground at that point, um, in terms mm-hmm. of just what's going on. Yeah, Pierce Patch is kind of interesting. Like uh, it, it was the same for me. Like I didn't quite understand. Okay, why did they kill him again? Don't right. quite get it. And then eventually, after watching a few times, like okay, he was kind of caught within uh, Dudley Smith's web. He, I mean, Dudley Smith taking over the Mickey Cohen racket, basically that involved taking over every major aspect of crime in the city. Like it wasn't just drugs, it was prostitution and everything else. So everybody basically had to step in line and fall under Dudley Smith, whether they knew it or not, you know, so (laughs) you, you fucked up, you're going to get killed by him. I think, um, Strathern is uh, probably the one weak link in the cast for me. Um, not that I love, I love him as an actor, Mm-hmm. I, I think he's a little bit miscast here because we're supposed to kind of buy him as the potential bad guy, right? I yeah. Mean, you know, like structurally, and, and I don't I don't get the menace and I don't get the the kind of sense of mystery. I just kind of get him as I mean, he feels like a little bit of a like middle manager almost, you know? Yeah. And, and not and not and not in like a threatening way, just kind of in mm-hmm. a like you know he, he's a and then I think it's a perfectly fine performance. I don't think that it. I mean, it works in the film, but if you if you kind of ask you to like pick a pick it apart a little bit, I, I was kind of sitting there and thinking like, what we really need is someone like um, Joe Polito in this role, you know, <laughs> <laughs> straight out of Miller's Crossing, you know, just uh, he's kind of elitist and amoral, but he's not evil. Like he's just mm-hmm. he's just kind of there, and he you know he's making his moves and stuff, and he's he's done a very good job of like trying to keep himself kind of out of the limelight like he he's he's a he's a successful crime boss essentially yeah, he's, yeah. he's the, you know the one you never know is actually the crime boss you know he's doing a good job he just he follows he falls under dudley smith who's deep down under that stern catholic exterior is a stone cold fucking psycho yeah, yeah. And, and and anyone who fucks up or gets in his way dies and that's just it i wish we got a little bit more background on the uh, florida lease parties I, I wish that there was a little bit more i mean i, I yeah, feel like that's a it, that's in a the novel that kind of Oh, it's in the novel. Okay. The novel gets pretty much pornographic with it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to read this novel then. Yeah. I, I, we get we get little glimpses of it. I, I wish, um, you know, the, the kind of the how extensive this is. You know, just sort of mm-hmm. the, the crime boss kind of mentality. I, I think that's a, you know, again, a sort of like, oh, yeah, I wish there was a little bit more of this in here. You know, but it's not. It's really a sideline to the to the through yeah. line of. The, film so i mean it makes sense that we we get a glimpse we see like one party where he's kind of like stalking in the background and that's that's kind of about it but yeah dana devito we should talk about dana devito yeah a performance he was born for i mean <laughs> if, if you need the sleazy tabloid guy i mean danny devito look no look no further really and yeah. fucking great acting job from him though i mean he he's he's phenomenal in this and um i mean all the performers are phenomenal. I mean, even yeah. Strather. I was, I was not. I'm not trying to like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. Strather there. That was. Uh, but um, yeah, no. Devito is uh, absolutely. I love his death scene. I mean, honestly, mm-hmm. I, lo- I love his final scene. I think that's one of the. You know, he's like learn to pull your punches. You know, that's. It's yeah, such a, it's such a, he has such a great line reading on that because he has a, no idea what the fuck's about to happen to him. He's yeah. such a sleaze ball and he's so he's so willing to play ball because he thinks, hey, it's going to get me more money, more stories. Yeah. Great. But no, he he's just another guy who gets caught in the web and he doesn't realize it. I love that they're like like huge circulation numbers that he's like thirty two thousand. We got thirty two thousand. 
It's like in Los Angeles, you know, with three million people. In the although, area. although when you think about it, a, a print newspaper at this point would be happy to get those that sort yeah, of yeah, sort of that's numbers. True. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just, it, I mean, it, it is kind of like this scuzzy small scale kind of thing, you know, and it's just like. I, I, I'm just kind of looking at it and like, do the economics of this quite work? Eh, I don't know, you know, but, you know, well enough. They seem to be working well for him. He's, he's passing 50s to Vincent's every goddamn time you see him, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, like, how does this guy have this much money? I mean, he's got to be, there's got to be some side business. He's got to be on the take somewhere, right? You know, he's. Well, yeah, I, I think he's also. Um, I mean, he he does some setups there, like they 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 set up uh, Simon Baker there with the uh, DA. Yep. So he he's he's definitely involved in those uh, sort of extortion games, the same sort of extortion games that uh, Patchett is, is involved in often. You know, so right. there's a lot of that stuff going on. Simon Baker, another Australian actor. Yep, yeah. who uh, you know would later become famous on The Mentalist, obviously. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was watching this and I went, oh fuck, Simon Baker. I like poked my wife because she used to watch the uh, The Mentalist and like, look, Simon Baker. Oh, that's awesome. He has like what <laughs> five lines or something, but yeah, um, but he's good. I, I love that. He's good. Uh, he he, he kind of he he really sells this young gay actor in Hollywood trying mm-hmm. to make it, who's, you know, trying to keep his gayness under wraps. When he's talking with Kevin Spacey there, when when they're doing the setup or whatever, and then they're just alone there for a minute to talk, I guess he kind of thinks that maybe Kevin Spacey's gay. And right. they're talking about Patchett, and he's like, you know, I, I dig Patchett, but, you know, he's he's not into guys or gals. He's got some other weird thing going on. And, and, and Spacey's like, you know, just kind of like, oh, yeah, tell me more, tell me more, kind of leading him on. And it's like, it's just a really good little scene. It's a really good little yeah. dialogue scene. Well, and it, and it shows uh, Vincennes as a cop. You know, it's kind of, mm-hmm. he suddenly, this is a completely unexpected source of information, but he knows how to kind of let him talk. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. For yeah, we met at a party, right? And at first, he's kind of like, you know, oh, do I know you from somewhere? He, he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he was right. goofing on the reefer earlier, Daniel. So he probably didn't remember. <laughs> I like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do an all hophead issue. And then, yeah, <laughs> man. Some of the lines, some of the things. Um, man, there's a, there's some there's some great there's some great dialogue in this. I don't know. It, it's sort of. Uh, I mean, we could talk police corruption, I guess. We could talk, uh, I mean, God, I don't know. Where else Where else do you want to go? I really want to cite, I think, the montage at around the hour mark of the film. I think it's one of the best montages I've ever seen in film. I think it just kind of, it carries a kind of weird emotional weight in the way it's done. And it's yep. got that song Wheel of Fortune by K-Star going in the background of it. And it just, I think it just, you know, it covers however many months that are going on between the initial start of the story and when we get into the real mystery of everything where stuff starts to connect. Uh, I like it because it starts off, you know, some people are succeeding. Then you see a, a guy like Bud White who's just suffering miserably because he, he can't, you know, he, he's too scared to, to go up to uh, Lynn Bracken's door and, uh, <laughs> and and say, hey, let's go on a date. Just kind of that pure movie-making moment that sort of says a lot without, you know, giving you any real dialogue or anything like that. I think it just works really well. Yeah, and in a film that's so built around dialogue and in a genre. I mean, you know, this is, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, your cop movie, your cop TV show, like your cop genre is basically like a dude in a suit with a gun walks up to people and has conversations with them. Yeah. And we're going to do that for two hours, and there's going to be like an occasional gunfight. That's what this genre is. So the idea yeah. of doing a a sequence that is dialogue free and that really kind of like it, it's you know kind of shows you the world. Yeah, no, you're right. It really works. 
I never really put my finger on that before, but yeah, you're right. That that's a that's a really great uh, pull there. I mentioned the action earlier. Um, I love the way that the action is shot in this. The shotgun sequence uh, towards the middle um, right. after the after the dudes escape. It's not a long sequence, and it's definitely not you know it's not like pulse pounding. I mean, I started thinking about John Woo just a little bit, you know, and that <laughs> sort of the not not to the degree that Woo, you know, the excesses of Woo, you know, kind of well, yeah, no it's flying around. It's not know? over the top, but it's very quick and very kinetic. Like it's it's right. kind of like how something like that really would be if a bunch of people yeah. are pulling guns on each other in a room all at once. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are going to die really quick. It's yeah. it's not it's <laughs> not going to be a long drawn out gunfight. You know, they're not going to jump behind a coach and shoot at each other from behind the couch in the chair and shit, you know. But uh, I think you, you pulled it earlier when we were talking about Die Hard. You know, you've got fairly static um, kind of wide shots. Right. And, and a lot of the action is kind of shot that way. And then, you know, kind of quick cuts, but still with a sort of visual logic. So you always mm-hmm. kind of get what's going on. I do love actually having to do this without his glasses just because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's like, no, 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 there are going to be cameras. I can't, you know, so of course he's got a shotgun and then he gets the moniker shotgun head. And then later on, that plays uh, into the end of the film, the, the kind mm-hmm. of the big, what I think is a, a really amazing um, final uh, shootout sequence, which I think is uh, right. just just phenomenal. I mean, again, um, it does, um, referencing again, it does kind of bring up Touch of Evil for me, um, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of isolated uh, uh, kind of motel, kind of rundown shack sort of thing. And then, you know, I love the fact that guns work the way guns work, where like a door will not actually protect you from, you know, mm-hmm. gunfire. You know, uh, I love the idea that that White and Exley uh, end up kind of joining forces, and they they end up being kind of really equal foils for each other in a lot of ways. You know, because Bud White is all bluster and force, and Exley's a little bit more like subtle, but like has his own you know kind of strength within him. And I mean, you even get that in the way that they fight, and the way that they that, you know because. Yeah. White's like, all right, I'm going down into the into the cellar, and you know, I'm gonna, you know, it's just it's a cracker jack sequence. I, I really, I just love that sequence. I always think about that when I think of like great shootout sequences. And they have that good little moment, this brief, and actually, actually has it with with both his leads. Uh, the the moment in the in the hotel where you know I, I always wanted to live up to my father, and then Bud's like, well, now here's your fucking chance, and they just sort of smile at each other, quick, you know, it's quick little bonding kind of joke. And then they have the same thing with uh, Vincennes and Exley after he gets done going after the question, Johnny Stompanato with the real uh, <laughs> Lana the Turner. Real Turner. <laughs> Listen, a cut up a, a whore cut up to look like Lana Turner isn't really Lana Turner, and and I love how it's it's framed that you know it it doesn't do a close up of Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey's just in the background smirking, going, "That is Lana Turner." <laughs> that is Lana. <laughs> Drink in the face, and then they all right. It's over. We can't. And, that, that's all we got. And there. Then they they go in the car and they just they laugh about it. That's all they can do yeah. is laugh about it's it. Like, it's like, it's a, how was I supposed to know? He's like he's like you know, and then they just laugh. It's great. Mm-hmm. And then uh, while we're on Exley, just uh, I think the the real cracker deck sequence in the film is that interrogation sequence, right? Um, he he just you know. he just tears them down. He, yeah, he's, he's, um, you, you see how good he actually is at being a detective, right there. Like, yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he's I mean he's completely manipulating these kids. I mean, there, <laughs> there's no there's no sense in which like this is ethical, you know, interrogation yeah. technique. But um, you absolutely believe like, oh yeah, this is this is a man who is, lives in this world who actually is as good as he thinks he is. And that's and mm-hmm. that, I think that's the key to his character, is that, you know, if he, he's an egotistical fuck, but uh, he really does have the skills to back it up, and nobody believes him. But then the, you see him in that interrogation scene, and you go, dear Jesus, like, that's, that's <laughs> phenomenal, you know? And then, of course, uh, one element that I like, I mean, you know, just, just as a... Uh, 
as an aside, I, I like the idea that we're not um, presented with the the three men, um, the the black men who are originally supposed to have been the ones that did the Night Owl killings. You know, they have sense of their own. You know, mm-hmm. so so we do get a sense that like this is this, you know, kind of the, the the cops believed they were framing guilty men. I mean, you know, yeah. they were they were framing guilty men. I mean, these these guys are fucking rapists, and, you know, yeah. um, and, and and hypothetically murderers, but they didn't do the Night Owl killings. You know, yeah. that feels really realistic to me. Yeah. That um that given given you know they wouldn't just frame it on some some innocent kid you know I mean of course we know today that they actually they do that. would yeah they do that they do that all the time yeah I mean I think it, it, it's funny like watching it now it's like well actually Elroy you're not, probably not cynical enough about right. the actual police conduct because you know hey cell phone cameras have taught us that yeah look at the shit that actually happens when you actually just film the police yeah but you know there's no need to necessarily go there um, um yeah no I just wanted to, to bring up that that interrogation scene because I think that's it's phenomenal. Like the, when I think of this film, I think of the the characters, I think of the mood, and I think of the final shootout, and I think of that interrogation scene and the urine on the floor. That's the oh right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's 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 honestly there's nothing bad in this film. Like there's nothing really I can kind of say is you know a negative really or a strike against it. It's just kind of a and it, it's so unassuming too. Like this was just a kind of an optioned Elroy work that yeah. no one really wanted to do and. It got a modest $35 million budget, basically, and it ended up going $126.2 million worldwide overall. Yeah. It, it, it did only like 64 here in the U.S., so it wasn't a major success over here. But um, well, for, for a two-hour 15 movie that's a crime procedural that doesn't have a really clear lead in it right now, and there's, like, how do you sell this film to someone? Like, how do, like, how, what's the tagline for this? You know, mm-hmm. there's no locomotive in this, you know? Well, this so, isn't uh, this isn't the Untouchables with you know no. Kevin Costner in the lead, right? You know, right, right. This is this is more Chinatown with like three fucking Jack Nicholsons in it instead of one, <laughs> right? Exactly. Right? Um, uh, just a little bit of notes here. I picked uh, trivia wise. Twice this project was pitched for television. Originally, it was supposed to be a, a television series, and eventually they did try to make a television series. They released the pilot with Keith Sutherland as the Jack Vincent's character in it, as sort of the lead. A very different character. If you actually have the DVD, they actually have the pilot episode that never mm-hmm. went into being a series, and God, does it stink. It's not good. <laughs> well, when you're trying to replace Kevin Spacey with Kiefer Sutherland, you know. Yeah, he's, he's basically playing Jack Bauer. <laughs> so it, it it doesn't work at all. The most interesting note I saw in this is that Curtis Hansen actually had the ca- basically screen movies for the cast. He he had them do Kiss Me Deadly, Bad Influence, uh, The Killing, Bad and the Beautiful, In a Lonely Place, Private Health, Thirty Six, and The Lineup. I remembered all those. I didn't even have those in my notes. Um, yeah, and I haven't seen. I don't think I've seen any of those except for maybe The Killing. So yeah, we should I've probably seen, put those I've on seen the Kiss Me Deadly. I think okay. that's the only one of those I've seen. Right. Um, so, hey, noir series—just all the films yeah. that are mentioned in uh, Elika are in that. Yeah, no, that sounds, sounds like a plan. Sounds good. Sounds good. And apparently, the the role of Bud White was supposedly offered to Michael Madsen at one point. Oh man! And I mean, you know, he kind of makes sense because he was a thing right then, right? You know. So. Well, I mean, that's that's a few years after. I guess he was he was kind of deep in the the alcohol at that point. You know, yeah. It was kind of the, the real issue there, but he this this was a few years after. I 
the only thing I can think of that is like Tarantino. I mean, this was the Tarantino like being huge era, right? right. Like everybody was chasing the the Tarantino gold, and I can imagine that that's a lot of why this film got made. Was you know, it is kind of about like car- white guys carrying guns in suits, you know? Yeah. And I can sort of see how like that's how it got greenlit, and then they just had something else they wanted to do with it, so mm-hmm. they were able to just kind of make the film they wanted to make. I mean, I have to like the films that have you know white guys carrying guns in, in suits with skinny ties genre. I, I kind of like that genre, yeah. but like it's it's certainly not it doesn't fit into that genre. But I can sort of see yeah. how they how it sort of um, became that. Yeah, Michael Madsen. I can only imagine that they thought, oh yeah, he's just gonna play Mister. Uh, he's just gonna play Mister Blonde again. You know, he's just he's gonna bring that well, into it. You know? No, I don't. I don't know. I, I I have a feeling that he they they had the idea. Like I think he can convincingly play the sort of same character. Like you get this idea that Bud White's kind of this ex military guy, like the sort of big beefy all American USA kind of yeah. war veteran, you know, who's come back without anything to do, but maybe take a job in the police force. Um, yeah, I could. I mean, we don't get a lot of his. I guess maybe in the novel you might get a little more of his background. I yeah, mean, I can't. I this, can't remember. Fifty seven. This is supposed to take place in. Am this I... is supposed to be fifty three, and okay. then and then and then, like I said, of course, the book actually covers like eight fucking years, uh, right. basically. But. Yeah, this is all condensed into nineteen fifty three. So yeah, I guess I guess the only thing I would I would think is you know I could see him as kind of a World War Two vet because Korea would have been like right right in that time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like yeah. I could see him as I mean basically, I mean anytime you have a man in his thirties in a movie set in nineteen fifty two, they either fought in the war or they avoided fighting in the war. Yeah, you know, like that. Yeah. That's sort of the 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 end of the line there. So. Um, and I think we underestimate the degree to which that, like, that was just everybody at that time period, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could see him kind of coming back and feeling directionless, and and just deciding to to go into the police force. This is a all right. This is <laughs> I I I like to to beat up people who beat on their wives, and so this is the way to do that legally. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only other two things I have for it, probably one of the most impressive things, is that this was shot on location for the most part. A lot of these buildings are just existing buildings from the 1950s that still stood. They had to shoot the city hall from a lower angle to make it taller than any of the other buildings because back in that day, the city hall actually legally had to be taller than any other building in in the town, apparently. So that that was a cool thing. Um, The only place that was a set that was built was the Victory Motel because they had to shoot it the fuck up. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> that makes sense yeah. yeah um and the only other thing uh dvd blu-ray info uh warner video released an excellent 2008 release on both dvd and blu-ray and i own the dvd version and that's the one you want to look for it's got all the extras like a shit ton of, there's like three hours of extras on it and then there of course there's the, the tv pilot that is an interesting curiosity just to see how fucking awful it is and there's also another disc that has uh, four or five cuts from the uh, soundtrack. Nice. Um, highly recommended. I'm glad we finally yeah. did this one. Yeah, yeah. Great, great film. Great to revisit. It's it's nice to uh, nice to start with something I already knew really well for the for 2017, and then uh, move into to other stuff down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we just have a few comments we need to get through here that relating to the film. So. Uh, James Murphy said, I just want to make the point that James Cromwell is a more valuable player than Kevin Spacey in the film, and Spacey's very good, too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if I would say he's more valuable. It's but. such it's such a Rube Goldberg machine to a certain degree, this, this story. Yeah. You know, everything kind of has to hang together, and so any individual piece that just didn't work would kind of break the film. So it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to say 
Cromwell's performance is more integral than Spacey's. I think it's easier to kind of see Spacey as just kind of doing Spacey at this point. You know, Spacey's uh-huh. kind of, he's doing the Kevin Spacey thing of kind of walking on and being Kevin Spacey and then, you know, being brilliant. Uh, whereas I think Cromwell's doing something a little bit more interesting, you know, and uh, we're not necessarily yeah. used to Cromwell kind of doing this. Also, Cromwell was, this is our second uh, Cromwell film, because we covered Revenge of the Nerds, and uh, right. he, uh, he's he's Louis Skolnick's dad, so, you know. A little, little less sinister in that film, just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't even do the, the nerd, the nerd, the nerd, uh, the nerd laugh, but. <laughs> I yeah. can't believe I pulled that out in my ass right then. No, uh, no I, lo- I mean, I love them both. I, you know, I, I think that's an arguable point, and I think James, you need to come on the show and uh, we'll argue it. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Jack Graham says, "I guess you know that Rolo Tomasi isn't in the book. Yes, indeed, it's a creation to sort of tie the plot together, basically. Um, to it says basically to exercise some of Elroy's overplotting. And yeah, that's interesting. Elroy does kind of overplot his books, which is." kind of funny considering the way he writes which is very short sentences very kind of staccato kind of dialogue and stuff like that kind of almost like a he kind of writes like how you expect a jazz musician like a legit coke fiend jazz musician from the 1930s to think in inside their head you know kind of thing like he kind of writes that way i kind of feel but he says i love elroy he's a crazed reactionary racist homophobic Man-pain, fetishizing, floored, unhinged, overwriting, overplotting mess of a man and a writer, but fuck, he's exciting to read. Well, he was until Blood's a Rover, which just flew right off the rails and ended up looking like a deliberate but misjudged act of self-parody. Honestly, I'd probably argue that a lot of Elroy's persona is kind of self-parody to a certain degree. I think he kind of knowingly kind of ramps it up a little bit for people, but um, I don't know. I don't even want to really argue it, but uh, he says, I love this movie. There is something a little sad about the way it tones Elroy down, smooths out the characterization, and the moral journeys makes it into a gritty but essentially prestige period piece. But then De Palma tried to do a more Elroyish our movie of the Elroy book, though even he had to iron out the labyrinth plot. And yeah, that was the Black Dahlia. Dahlia, yeah. Dahlia, yeah, which was a hot mess, as he said it ended up being. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I saw the reviews on that one and skipped it, so, you know. It's, it's, uh, I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't even want to say there's what no, it is. There's no need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kit Power says, I agree with all this uh, in response to Jack. Ellery is one of my very favorite authors, working truthfully. I don't even mind Blood's a Rover, though all of Jack's criticisms of that book are fair and valid. I also love the movie, and I actually think it's probably as close as a movie can come to capturing the spirit of Elroy's storytelling without being a totally hot mess. Elroy describes L.A. Confidential as unfilmable, and as written, he's right. Looking forward to Daniel and on the ginger politics. Well, you got some of that. And, oh, and DeVito's voice, voiceover is wonderful. Yeah, that's kind of interesting that they, they use DeVito as the voiceover for this, and then he gets killed near the end of the film. And it's like, oh, voiceover's gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry, kid. Didn't, didn't dig into the gender politics uh, as much as maybe I, I could have. But, I mean, I, I think everything I was going to say is fairly obvious on, on this one. You know, where you know it's like yeah, there, there's there's one woman in it, and uh, she gets beat in the face by the end. Yeah, the only other one's what Amber Smith or whatever her name is, who's basically dead in the next scene. You see oh her right, right, yeah, and yeah. then and then yeah, and God, then Ida's or well, whatever. God, like every woman in the film is like is brutalized beaten. at some point. Well, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> oh, and uh, the, oh, the, and model, the, the mother is like the mother, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, who 
who is uh, you know just avoiding the fact that there's a rotting body underneath. Yeah. Her oh, don't go in there! Don't go yeah. in there! Oh. oh man, yeah. No, once you start thinking about the gender politics, but it's always terrible. Like, I mean, you know, come on, like it, it just is. Um, yeah, yeah. The uh, film, the film, it succeeds despite that. But yeah, it's it's got pretty noxious. Yeah, yeah. Cameron Sullivan says, I think Elroy even hinted that he wasn't a huge fan of uh, Brian's adaptation. Yeah, I've seen sort of varying uh, accounts of that from Elroy, depending on depending on where he's talking and who he's talking to. But uh, he seems mixed on his collaborations with David uh, Iyer, Dark Blue, and Street Kings, which actually those are two movies we should cover at some point. I like Dark Blue. says, I think the end shootout really easily rivals earlier Coppola work on The Godfather. Totally agree on that. And the film flies by fast for an almost three-hour flick. Yes, Elroy is rather cynical. Heck, he even liked Skyfall just because it was an anti-007 film. <laughs> Elroy has a good fucking taste in movies. I, I, I hear he does like the Alamo draft host sort of presentations every once in a while. With yeah, I think films. I've seen. I think I've seen some of that. Yeah, I would really love to see LA Confidential on the big screen at some point. I mm-hmm. think that would be an amazing um, experience. I mean, God, it's twenty years old. Maybe the Alamo will do it this year. That would that would yeah. be nice. Um, I, I got a feeling you probably won't, <laughs> or yeah. Elroy won't at least. But um, right, I mean, um, the Alamo might. The Alamo might. Yeah, I know Elroy's kind of sick of talking about this film. <laughs> he he had this line once about how like a little lady came up to him in a video store saying, "Oh, you're the one who did L.A. Confidential. I love that movie." And he's like, "Did you write? Did you read the book?" And they're like, "No." Then what fucking use are you to me if you have, you're not buying my book and reading it? <laughs> Um, oh, I actually have not read any of Elroy's work. I, I feel like I feel like this is a uh, gap in my knowledge. I need to I need to read some Elroy. So you should pick up some of his books. I think you'll uh, quite enjoy them. But yeah, uh, Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the old interwebs. I haven't been very active lately on the interwebs. I'm trying to get back into it, but um, I do have a nice podcast archive talking about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, uh, various other sundry things uh, over at oispaceman.libsyn.com. And I uh, am uh, writing a bit and trying to get stuff uh, over at arutoralpress.com. Hopefully you'll start seeing essays over there again. Yeah, last few months have been just kind of tough for me personally, so I just haven't gotten a lot of creative work done, but 2017 is here, and it's time to put the nose back to the grindstone and Start producing free content for the world again. Right on. Stop doing things for my own personal pleasure and get back and, you know, like labor for the world for the the pleasure of other people. Trying Trying to placate you vile hounds who are just drooling at his teats waiting for more sweet, sweet literary and audio milk come pouring yeah, exactly, out. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. No. Yeah, uh, you can find us, of course, at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our YouTube, our iTunes, our Facebook links. Go to Facebook, join our group, They Must Be Destroyed on Site, the best place to get in touch with us. And leave your feedback, leave your comments, leave your questions, leave your insults, leave your phone numbers if you're really, really hot. And there you go. Uh, I don't know what we're doing next. I know I'm going to be doing something with Paul tomorrow night potentially some horror stuff and i don't know when that's going to come out but we'll we'll figure it out go to our there will group. be another episode sometime with someone sometime with someone yep so until then guys thank you very much uh for listening to us thank you for joining me daniel and uh we'll see you guys soon see you soon cheers
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>